Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by R.J. Pistrito, who is a professor of politics, also dean of our graduate school. He just gave us a lecture on the Chevron case, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, I want you to tell us a little bit about the graduate school here at Hillsdale College. It's new, new-ish, I should say. When did new. we start it? What do we teach here, and how is it different from other graduate schools? Well, we opened our doors in 2012 uh, with the Van Andel Graduate School Statesmanship, uh, although it had been in the works for a number of years before that, of course. Uh, the school offers master's degrees and PhDs uh, in uh, two tracks, in American politics and in political philosophy. And the thinking of the school is uh, we're interested in turning people out into the public square uh, into public service, uh, whether that be in in you know, in government, in in think tank work, in journalism, or also in education. That's the other big area that we're interested in, both higher education and and also uh, secondary education. And uh, the you know, the understanding of the school is you need an education and first principles to do those things well. Right before you go out and and learn whatever specific on the job kinds of things uh, pertinent. To your to your career, uh, we provide what we call a first principles uh, approach. We start with the, the Constitution. We want to understand the founders, uh, and the political philosophy is there because we want to understand the the principles and the great tradition of the West that uh, that our founders were educated in. So that's what our students study. So you have this kind of an education going to many types of careers, certainly in the in the public arena. Is this kind of education good for judges? Uh, it would be great for judges, actually. Uh, unfortunately, most of them don't get this kind of education because ju judges are lawyers. They, they go to law school. Uh, and certainly, uh, judges and lawyers need training in the law. You need that, you need that vocational training as well. But the problem is that uh, most law schools, in fact, I think almost every law school, uh, doesn't, doesn't really take the law, uh, doesn't teach the law from the perspective of first principles. So, for example, uh, even if you study constitutional law at law school, uh, most often you're not really going to spend uh, much time, if any time at all, reading the actual Constitution. You're, what you're going to study in law school is what courts most recently have said the Constitution means. And so it's sort of lawyers quoting and, and citing what, what other lawyers have said. Uh, and when you go into a court, that's how courts run. You have to be able to practice that. You have to know how that works. You need to know all the black letter law, of course. Uh, but uh, we have students, uh, for example, who come into our program who want to get our education first before they would then go into, uh, say, law school uh, because they want to they get that first principles understanding they know they're not going to get uh, in, in, in the legal uh, academy. We're recording this course in the fall of 2016 when the course started. We did not know the outcome of the presidential election. That's right. Today we do know yeah. that Donald Trump won. Mm -hmm. We also know that he's going to have an opportunity to pick a Supreme Court justice. He'll have maybe more than one opportunity to do That's that. Right. And there'll be a bunch of judges he needs to appoint to the federal bench. What should he look for in a judge or a justice as he goes about this? Well, I think you have, you have to look for uh, a judge that's going to be faithful both to the law as written uh, and also someone who uh, hopefully brings an understanding of the, of the Constitution. And uh, right now, unfortunately, in, in the courts, we tend to have uh, uh, 
judges or courts that are most interested in preferred ideological outcomes and uh, often kind of read back whatever view of the law they need to have uh, uh, in order to reach the, the result that they're most in interested in. Uh, we have some, some of our judges, especially certainly some on the Supreme Court, uh, that are well-educated and well-grounded in first principles, and I think that, that shows through in the excellence of, of their opinions. Uh, we, need, we need more like that. Now, Republican presidents have a spotty record. Yes, they do. From a conservative standpoint. Yes, they do. When it comes to picking uh, Supreme Court mm -hmm. justices. Uh, Democrats always seem to get liberals. They never make a mistake. They That's get right. the progressives they want. Why do Republicans sometimes have problems in this area? Well, I think, I think Republicans tend uh, not to be as, as cutthroat uh, as, the as the Democrats are in, the, in this area, and they tend, uh, the, the Democratic interest groups, the liberal interest groups, tend to be much more uh, important and well-connected into the, into the Democratic Party. Um, but I also, uh, I also think, that you, again, if you turn to the law schools, you, you have to remember most, most law schools uh, you know, tilt very, very hard to, to the left. And uh, so, and especially, especially the Ivy Leagues, where almost all of our, I think we're now all of our Supreme Court justices come out of, uh, and, and I'm sure the vast majority of other, of other federal judges as well, at least at the, cert, at the uh, appellate level, uh, and, and there's a very clear uh, bent or bias there, and uh, that, that's, that's how they're educated. Let's talk about the Chevron case. Sure. Conservatives are often concerned about judicial power, the courts having uh, too much authority, uh, legislating from the bench, yeah. so on and so forth. Doesn't the Chevron deference limit the power of judges? It, it does, uh, and in fact, that's why the whole Chevron structure actually grew out of uh, s some of the uh, judges, both at the Supreme Court level, but especially at the appeals uh, level, who were considered to be judicial conservatives. Uh, it's a little hard to characterize these, uh, uh, these folks on administrative law questions because the, the label liberal and conservative don't, don't fit as easily. That having been said, uh, it, it certainly was a doctrine that conservatives who had opposed the Warren Court liberalism and activism uh, thought would protect, especially the executive branch, uh, which at that time was probably the only branch of government that, that these folks thought could ever have any influence uh, you know, from, from conservatives themselves. You have to remember Congress, you know, going, going, this was 1984 when Chevron came down, Congress was considered to be uh, the, the, the permanent province of the left. Uh, most people uh, don't young people, our students don't don't realize uh, that, that that races for the House of Representatives used to not be competitive. So you know the only place where we were going to get uh, any any possibility for conservative policy would be in the executive. And so certainly uh, there were many who who believed that uh, by protecting these agencies and by protecting the executive from being second guessed by, by folks on the judiciary. This would be for the for the good, and it's understandable, right? If you think about it, now it's it's caused a lot of problems. Now that we're, we're having runaway regulation by these agencies, but you know, from the point of view of somebody like a Justice Rehnquist or a Justice Scalia, who is a you know, big champion of, of of a strong, robust view of Chevron, they're looking down the bench, 
And they're seeing on the bench with them the likes of you know, Harry Blackman and William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, the big activist judges, or especially on the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where you had even, even more hardcore activists in terms of the administrative law. And they're trying to protect the executive from judges like that. So that's exactly where this came out of. Now, in your lecture, you mentioned Rehnquist and Scalia, the yep. late justices Rehnquist yes. and Scalia, as, as supporting the Chevron deference. Uh, when Justice Scalia was alive less than a year ago, and he would look down the bench, and he would see Alito and Thomas, did he see conservatives who, who were skeptical? Of the Chevron deference, he did. and so so who which which so you, so you named some supporters. Yes. Who are some prominent conservative critics of the Chevron deference, and what do they say? Well, Justice Thomas was was uh, certainly a critic of Chevron deference, and this is why uh, those of us who know administrative law uh, always knew that it that it simply wasn't the case. You know what it would have been said about Justice Thomas? Well, he, he always falls in lockstep with Justice Scalia. No, they used to lock horns in a, in, a, in a very uh, very deep way about these administrative law cases and especially about about Chevron. Uh, Justice Alito certainly has been uh, skept skeptical and even even Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts and in, in fact in one of the most important administrative law cases uh, decided more recently the, the 2013 City of Arlington case uh, it's a case where Justice Scalia was in the majority and it was a deferential ended up being a deferential decision to the to the to the agencies but Justice Roberts uh, wrote a dissent in that case. That was a, it was an amazingly sharp uh, dissent. And so the conservatives differed over this because, of course, the makeup of the judiciary now uh, is very different than what, say, someone like the late Justice Rehnquist was, was looking at. And there, uh, one, one hears, I've heard from, from those who know, uh, that, that uh, they believe Justice Scalia perhaps was in uh, uh, the midst of a reconsideration of Chevron. Now, uh, I don't know of any cases where there's evidence of that, uh, but evidently he, you know, he, he was taking a look down the bench and, and, and did evidently understand you know, there, there are different people on the bench these days. Is there a similar split among the liberals? The, uh, there is, and uh, one of the reasons is that if, if, you, uh, uh, if you think about, say, a, a, a traditional, um, uh, say, legal process, a uh, guy like just David Souter, for example, he and Scalia often used to clash about this. Uh, someone who's into legal process, they they really want to decide things on a case by case basis. They don't lock they don't lock, like what's called doctrinalism. They don't like clear rules which make it easy for people to figure out. You know, hey, the court just applies these rules in future cases. And you can kind of figure out how things are going to come. Somebody like Souter really didn't didn't like uh, to have this kind of strong deferential rule. He wanted to say no. Let, We'll review the law on a case-by-case -case basis as it comes. Uh, and so, so judges who like judicial power, and of course they all have an interest in judicial power, uh, certainly would have been and were skeptical of, of uh, the application of Chevron. Doesn't fighting against the Chevron deference uh, almost become an invitation to judicial activism? The kind that conservatives fear. That, that's the dilemma. I mean, and that, that is always... Uh, the, the dilemma is kind of a, it's kind of a pendulum, right? So, uh, for, for a for a long time, if you go back into the '70s, when this sort of the situation started to develop, to which Chevron was a reaction, you had uh, uh, courts, especially at the appeals level, the D the D.C. Circuit, which handles mostly administrative law cases. You know, anyone who wants to sue an administrative agency, you, you do it mostly in the D.C. Circuit. 
And you had uh, very activist judges in, in, in that circuit who were, who were using their positions on the bench essentially to allow interest groups to circumvent the regulatory agencies and, and to come into federal court and, and to uh, re regulate through the back door. And so uh, this was opposed. It was opposed by some judges down at the appeals level. Uh, Justice Scalia, of course, was at, was at the uh, appellate court level in the, in the early 1980s. And uh, Chevron, he was not on the Supreme Court when Chevron was decided. Uh, but then once he ascended to the Supreme Court, he saw what had been going on at the appeals court level and became a very uh, vigorous advocate of, of, of a strong reading of Chevron. So, uh, the, you know, so the pendulum was all the, the way, one way, you know, in, in the late 70s. Uh, as a result now of the Chevron Doctrine, with all the deference to the agencies, it's very much, very much the other way. Um, that doesn't mean that the previous concerns are not legitimate. Uh, and so some, some middle ground, it seems to me, has to, has to be found. What's the alternative to, to, to the Chevron deference? Is it kind of a Chevron disparagement where a, where well, a judge is, is, uh, 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 assumes that an agency is wrong? Or, or, is, or is it just a, a form of skepticism? Uh, I think a healthy skepticism. We have to remember this uh, without, without getting too technical. She the Chevron case controls those, uh, the Chevron precedent, I should say, controls those cases where agencies have made an interpretation of the law. And that's a big slice of administrative law, but, it, but it's not all of administrative law. There are all kinds of procedural uh, cases and questions that courts review. There, there are other more substantive decisions. This is one area of, of administrative law. And what critics of, Skep of uh, Chevron have always said is, it's one thing to defer to an agency when the agency is, say, making a determination of fact. The agency is supposed to have expertise with respect to facts. Here you have the agency interpreting a law, interpreting what Congress has written. That's, what it, that's what's at issue in a Chevron-style case. And the critics say, that's what judges are supposed to do. That's, agencies are experts in the, in the facts and in the science of what, of what they deal with. Judges are supposed to be experts in how to read a statute. That's what they teach you in law school. That's hopefully what they teach you in law school. And so that's, that's the criticism of Chevron, and I think that's a, that's a well-founded criticism. Now, in your lecture, you describe the rise of the administrative state, and then you say this, your elected rep representatives, in other words, the, our viewers, your elected representatives in Congress have had very little or really nothing to do with this. Yeah. Haven't they had everything to do with it, in fact? Yes, that's also true. <laughs> so ex explain that. Sure. Uh, so the, the major corrective, the major answer to the problem of Chevron is for Congress to start doing its job again. Uh, that is to say, it's only because Congress writes statutes that are so vague, that are so broad, uh, that create such ambiguities that the room is given to the administrative agencies essentially to make law uh, it, it, in, in, uh, in their stead. And, and so uh, if, if Congress actually decided to do some specific legislating, and that I take it is exactly what you, what you mean when you say, isn't, isn't it all about Congress? You know, take any example of, of recent regulation, something like uh, maybe, maybe the clean, uh, clean power rule that uh, you've seen promulgated by the EPA without any participation of Congress. Now, Congress did pass the EPA, or, or did pass the Clean Air Act and the amendments and, and all that, that that is now claimed as the legislative authority, but it's very broad, very vague. Um, the reason why 
the, EP, the EPA had to implement that rule on its own is because that rule never could have made it through Congress. If that rule were considered and debated before Congress, it, it would lose. And the reason is because the voters whom the members of Congress represent would not stand for it. Uh, likewise, think of the administrative action by the Department of Education with its dear colleague letter uh, essentially kind of threatening uh, every public school in the country that they needed to have bathrooms that had admitted you know, men and women, however people identify. Uh, think about if you had actually had that proposed in Congress. Not, not a million years would that have come close to passing Congress. Why? Because it would not have been popular with the people who, who elect members of Congress. And so uh, this governance through administration is used precisely to enact things uh, that really could not garner the consent of, of the governed. Uh, and the Chevron uh, uh, precedent, regardless of how well-intentioned it may have been initially, has aided and abetted uh, this, this sort of circumventing of, of popular rule. But you're right. It's all in Congress's hands. Congress uh, needs to and can reclaim it. So there, there, there's an abdication of responsibility to a certain extent. There is indeed. Yep. But also, you, Congress can't plan everything, can That's it? Right. You give an example in the lecture about, about longshoremen mm -hmm. and, and injuries to longshoremen. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, are you on the job or off the job? Are you on your way to work or leaving work or is it something else and so on? You, you can think of all these different kinds of circumstances that would lead to different kind of judgments about whether, uh, whether you should be compensated or not. Congress can't think of all that, doesn't Pre it? Pretty, do pretty low down at the level of detail is what but, you're saying. But yeah, yeah. Yes, doesn't it make yeah. sense for Congress to say, you know, take care of our longshoremen, make up some sensible rules, yeah. you guys figure out the details, here's a few principles. Yeah. To a certain extent, you're right. I mean, to a certain extent, um, you know, we have to be careful not to uh, uh, neutralize what executive discretion is, is meant to do. Uh, I mean, that, that is, to, the, you know, they're, they're, and this is one of the most difficult questions when you teach people something about the separation of powers in our Constitution. Everyone can say abstractly what legislative power is and what executive power is and how they're different. But when you start pointing to individual cases, okay, where does making the policy stop and implementing it take up? Uh, the example you just cited is a really good, tough, tough case. Uh, so so this, is, this is tough to, to figure out. Uh, I'd say a couple things about it. Number one, uh, surely part of the problem is that Congress has gotten itself into uh, regulating all kinds of things that uh, the founders never envisioned, uh, that, that, that are very difficult for a body like Congress to get themselves involved in. This is why we got the administrative state to begin with, right? Because as we started to enlarge the scope of government beyond any previous imagination, the way you asked the question is correct. How could Congress possibly get itself into the details of now everything that the federal government sticks its nose into? Uh, and so you, you need an administrative state to do that. Now, whether or not the national government should, in fact, be sticking its nose into all of these areas, you know, that's a different question. Uh, but but you are, uh, you, you're, you're right to raise that. Um, the other thing I would say is, too, you can, I think one possible reform, because you know, the administrative state, I think, is not going to go away whole hog uh, any, anytime soon. But one sensible reform would be to take regulations that are of a certain, you know, sort of cross a certain threshold of being impactful or being costly and make them go back to Congress before they, are, uh, uh, before they become law. So, for example, 
if the clean power plan had to go uh, back to Congress after the EPA promulgated it in order for it to be implemented, uh, it would very probably not be implemented because Congress, uh, Congress could not uh, have could not garner the votes to pass that, and so that's that could be one reform that you could you you could look at right because you're right Congress now otherwise has has gotten itself into so many areas it's impossible for them to legislate all these details. Last question, we're running out of time. Yeah. President Trump calls you like he does routinely. Oh, routinely, yes. And says says Professor Pastrito, I'm interviewing these candidates for the Supreme Court for the federal bench. They're starting to say things about the Chevron deference, the Chevron case. I'm confused. What should I look for them to say? What should I, what should I hope they're saying? What should their attitude toward the Chevron deference be as I go about filling the bench? Well, their, their attitude should be that, we're, that, that judges are not going to take a, uh, a second-place role to uh, administrators in interpreting the law. That's the, that is the job of the judiciary. R.J. Pastrito, thank you very much. We're out of time. This concludes week nine of Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. To learn more about our online courses, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.